to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here with Francis Murphy. Yo, yo, yo. Oh, the American voice is back. Great to hear. Only for a, a few seconds. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we are back. Captain's Log Project, episode, I don't know, four. That would probably be about right. Yeah, for a second I was confused as well, but then I remembered it is Star Trek 4. Yeah, so. we've technically done a pre-episode, so that would be episode 0 maybe of this. But uh, yeah, episode 4, Star Trek 4. The Voyage Home. The Voyage Home. Now, we're not going to watch this trailer. N- not now. We're not, in fact, we're not, we're not going to watch the trailer. We may, we'll kind of talk about it just now briefly. Um, we watched it last week and... Now we kind of just want to go into a wee bit of detail about what we're getting into with this film. Okay, well this this film is the same age as us, because it came out in 1986. Jesus. So the film is 33 years old, and it, it well, 30... Depending on when yeah, it came out, yeah. Yeah, just roughly, yeah. Um, I'm a young 32. Yeah, uh, yeah. I am, and I am a, an old 33. So... This film is a completely different type of film to the first three. It's a massive departure from that trailer alone. Yeah. The tone is just way off. It's so different. The funny thing about it is that if you look at Star Trek 1, Star Trek 1 was very... There had a lot of gravitas, was very serious and slow and quite foreboding and creepy. Star Trek 2 was... You know, while it was a lot more, um, the speed was ramped up. It still had a lot of ac- action, but it had sort of death in it, and there was gravitas. Star Trek Three had death, uh, loss, various things. Star Trek Four is kind of required, I think. Star Trek Four, t- it, it, it's a different side of Star Trek. It's the same characters. It's not like they've made the characters silly. They've just put them in circumstances that are, pardon me, that are very different, and that bringing them to the modern day so to speak at least as it was at the time the world that they they are visiting is not too different to ours it's far more familiar to us than the, the world they live in um it's the second one that leonard nimoy directs oh so he does this one as well yep wow that's interesting considering the tonal shift yeah but this you know it, it is it, i will probably until the the latest Star Trek reboot films was the most financially successful of all of them. Right, so this is... Because it kind of opened it up to an audience. And in fact, after Star Trek IV, the um, uh, affection for the Star Trek cast went through the roof, especially because they were getting older as well. So people started to see them as sort of an American institution, a bunch of living legends that were on the screen. And um, especially in Star Trek VI, their final mission i think the affection that people held them with held them in i suppose if that's the right way to put it it made it very sad mm-hmm. that it was over you know so i think this film really made them human to people yeah it's a different side to them which seems to show i have not we obviously haven't watched the film yet we're going to eventually you know get to watch it yeah. um but the trailer certainly uh highlights that sort of more relatable side to them you know they're not doing it well it's from this trailer i, I can only speak f- but it looks like they're, it's the fish out of water storyline they're coming back to our familiar world but it's unfamiliar to them and they're trying to cope with 
some sort of silly things and things like that but it's yeah. that kind of that's where the humor is yeah. um so I'm, I'm looking forward to how, how they do this um seeing these actors who have been dealing in the last two films specifically have been dealing with quite serious issues yeah <laughs> death and resurrection and all these kind of things losing sons yeah losing the ship so the Spot. it's probably maybe it might have it probably felt like that where they needed to lighten up a bit maybe do you think was there an appetite for that that kind of a tonal shift um i think so i think i, th- I reckon there was a number of different reasons there's a, a few of them i'm not going to talk about now because it will spoil the film there's some that leonard nimoy brought to the table that were nothing to do with comedy um there are high stakes as well for the reason that they end up in the past it's not just a joyride there is a specific reason they've had to go there and it is high stakes um so this that it's the genius of the film is that the the light-hearted stuff is wrapped up inside genuine star trek stuff that does actually matter. Do you know what I mean? It's not it's not a completely flippant film. It's just a oh, yeah. Let's go back to 1986. Well, blah blah. I was blah. going to ask like so the science behind it because I know that Star Trek always well, takes. There's uh, no science behind the time no, travel. Yeah, it's it's sort of right. Okay, time travel. Just just accept it. Yeah. Just imagine how it, how it's going to go. Um, again, was that accepted at the time for yeah, for people yeah. star trek fans well it's actually a callback to the original series because the method they used to go back in time is exactly the same one that they used in the right. original series okay. for an episode the, all right it's the same method some sort of discovery starfleet made so they had an internal consistency there when they brought that back for this film even though it's completely wild and it makes no sense at all that being said it does bizarrely enough make sense if you were to do it around a different Pardon me. I've got I've got a bit of gas, guys. Just thought I'd uh, let you know. That's why I'm sort of quietly stopping every few seconds. So to go back in time, they slingshot around the sun, or basically you can slingshot around a star really quickly, and it will send you back in time. What's interesting is that that you, if you were to orbit very closely around a black hole, which is another massive object, by massive I mean heavy, gravitationally infinite, a black hole is. Then you it's very act- timely to be talking about that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you would actually travel forward in time faster than the time around you. So when you came out of the orbit, you would you would be thousands of years in the future, even though for you it was only a few minutes or whatever, or a few days or, whatever, or however long it would be. So there is an element of truth to the idea that orbiting closely around a very heavy object would affect time. Whether it could send you back in time or not, I'm not an expert. I think Stephen Hawking has commented on the fact that it may well be possible to to do that, but it would involve combining it with another phenomenon. But I'm, there's no point going into that because it's nothing to do with movies. But <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, it's perfect for the. This is a science fiction film. Emphasis on the word fiction. Science fiction. It's a nice combo of the two. It's just about plausible enough. It's been done before in the show. It's fine. Mm-hmm. But they're not doing it. It's a dangerous thing to do. They're only doing it because they absolutely have to do it. As in, do you mean the story? No, I mean... As in the filmmakers, well, yeah, the, sto- the studio, as the, in... The story, is- yeah, sorry. They, yeah, in terms of like, they haven't... They, this is not something that Starfleet officers would just do. Mm-hmm. It's something that they do as a... 
Well, in the original series, they had some problems with it. The, the time travel is complicated. I mean, if you go back and you change something, no things can happen or whatever. So this is a, a last resort. Okay. They're doing it. So they, they justify it. it. It makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, probably in a couple of minutes, then we'll put it on. Is there anything else we need to discuss? James Horner's back in this one as well, isn't he? I'm not sure. Oh. Oh. I'm not sure. That's I, upsetting. I, I had to look it up. In fact... Um, let me just check. Um, oh wow! Okay, uh, I'm I'm not an expert of these parts of it. For some of the films, Star Trek for I I would say it's probably someone else, but um, maybe I have to check the writer as well. Uh, I think it was Harv Bennett and Leonard Nimoy that wrote it as well. Um, Star Trek for composer uh, Leonard Rosenman. So. So it's not, not a Howard Shore. Well, I suppose you can kind of... Howard Shore, is that right? What did I say there? James Horn. Howard Shore? What the hell? <laughs> James Horn. Howard Shore? It's Howard Shore. Who is Howard Shore? I don't know. <laughs> that was the weirdest thing I've ever heard. I wonder who Howard Shore is. I feel like I've known that. I know that name from something. <laughs> did you see the look in my face there? Yeah, uh, that was, that's how I knew I'd said something that wasn't quite right. <laughs> it's like, is this a joke that I'm supposed Howard, to be laughing at? Howard Shore. We'll need to look into that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just Google that. I think Steve's just had a stroke, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I don't know if I'm going to keep all this, but who knows. So. Yeah, no, you've got to keep that Howard Shore. Oh, that's a name. That's definitely somebody's name. He's a Canadian composer. <laughs> um... Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Mm. That's where I know the bloody name. So that wasn't crazy of me to be talking about another composer. I, mean, I often mix up Star Trek 2's battle theme with Lord of the Rings. So, it's not James Horner. Uh, I can kind of see why they wouldn't maybe go... Not that I don't think he's got range. Um, but, you know, probably his battle stuff, as we spoke about, is probably his, his strongest point. Um well, you're going to immediately see the difference when the music kicks in, right? Okay, because it and you'll 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 probably respect the decision because it's music's a tonal shift. Mm -hmm. for, for, yeah, for if, the if we're going for a tonal shift, then I suppose you change up a good few things. Yeah, um, that makes sense. But the look is consistent. It's 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 fine. It sh it looks the way it should. What I would say as well is the Klingon ship's interior has changed slightly. But the explanation for that is that the Vulcans had repurposed it slightly to make it easier and more comfortable for the humans. Okay. And that involved some some inner reworking of the ship. But the control panels and things are similar, so they, they do comment on how difficult it is to use Klingon language controls and stuff. But it does look different. The explanation is they brought it to maybe a more Federation standard layout, which you would do, wouldn't you, if you had your ship docked somewhere? I suppose so. Um, you know, having had experience um, running something like Starfleet and all yeah. that. What, when you were playing Mass Effect? Yeah. There you go. Oh, I want to go play Mass Effect now. Shouldn't have done that. We'll do a podcast about it once I've played it as well. Oh, well, seen about five years then. Yeah. Right, I think we've covered most of what we're going to cover. Um, is there anything else you can think of that we need to discuss before watching the film? Nope, because it's a kind of you can't really go into too much of the setup. It sounds like there's some some stuff goes down, and that's why they end up yeah back in time. So we'll leave it as that. Okay, then we're going to go and watch the film now. Um, this is obviously going to become a spoiler podcast when once we've watched it, we'll be coming back. 
And um, if you're listening to this, as I've said before, and you haven't seen the film and do want to see it, then don't listen to the rest of this podcast. But then why would you be listening to it? So Exactly. Exactly. And if you do, despite the warning, then just accept the spoilers. Okay. All right, then. We'll see you soon. Adois. Something like that. Bye-bye. And we're back. We have now watched Star Trek for the voyage home. And we liked it. Surprisingly. Yeah, well, I liked it. Anyway. Yeah. I, th- I feel like I've got a massive bias towards Star Trek anyway. So, yeah, this was um this was a fun film. This was, you know, a complete departure as I expected in most ways tonally um i mean it was just so it took me a while to just feel like this is i can't believe you know two films ago was the the wrath of can yeah i know it's nuts isn't it and then i'm watching a film where they're just trying to get you know find some whales yeah i mean it's what i do like about it though well i like everything about this film to be honest but what one thing i do really quite enjoy is that the start part of the film where you see the sh- basically uh, we should probably I, I'll try and maybe yeah, you, describe you, you what's try and, happening yeah. so a giant probe heads towards earth and on route to earth disables ships Klingon ships Federation ships when it gets to earth it destroys the atmosphere and the oceans and it's looking for something basically and Kirk and company are on Vulcan after the end of Star Trek 3 as renegades because they've stolen the Enterprise and it's been destroyed and all this kind of thing. And on the way home they realise what's happening and they figure out that the probe is looking for humpback whales so they have to go back in time to get a couple of whales to bring to the future to communicate with the probe to make it go away, basically. As you do. But what is enjoyable about the film outside the madcap stuff that you're describing is that the start of the film is quite serious with the the ships. Yeah, like the start of the film feels like a connection to the last film. It feels like, you know, if you had told me that was the end of the last film, I wouldn't have not, you know, disbelieved. I would be like, okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And then within 15 minutes, I'm like, is this the same film? Yeah. Um, That, you know, we we're watching it beginning. It's it's a strange one. Um, I think it's maybe slightly to its detriment, but it's not a big deal because it yeah. has to feel like a Star Trek film in most ways, and that ties it into that. Yes, but um, yeah, it is. It's like a stark contrast. It's a wee bit jarring. Yeah, I would say. But then again, I suppose that's the way it would feel for the crew because one minute they're where they feel comfortable and then it would be like us suddenly being 300 years in the past imagine you were to click your fingers and suddenly you were surrounded by peasants and folk that couldn't read or write or you know do you know what i mean and there was no technology anywhere you would you would feel if you were to click from one to the other you would feel that wouldn't you you would feel absolutely jarred mm-hmm. internally by that change there was, I think, if the film was structured differently and there was more of a gradual thing where they they studied it and then they went 
and, and landed on the on planet Earth in 1986, then it wouldn't have felt like that. But they just walked out of the ship and walked into... Yeah, it was. Yep, we're here. Let's just... Yeah. The film, the 80s hits come on. The 80s tunes. The You know, you see the, the look of oh, San Francisco or California then. Uh, you know, big hair, all that kind of stuff. The, Jazzy the fashion. Music. And it, you know, it just changes into, you know, it's a mid-80s pop film yeah like uh you know it could be uh the breakfast club or home alone or whatever was around then i know it's weird it, it's it was really ghostbusters or something like that like that sort of vibe um, yeah. and it's just you can't believe though well, these are star trek characters who are there yeah. if they weren't wearing those uniforms you would generally think it was just the cast used again for whatever what was reason. interesting was that they actually preserved the characters quite well. The characters did actually. Remain. Well, I think I think yeah, I think that's the strength of the film that it does. It struck a fine line, very fine line between remaining faithful to these characters. That's been now you know a series before this plot, but now the Were fourth they 20 film. Years by this point, yeah. Playing these characters, so it doesn't feel like they went straight. You know they ventured too far away f- into caricature too much. Mm-hmm. There's elements of, you know, Spock and doing swearing and stuff like that. It was nearly doing that, but it was it was funny and it had been set up well enough that it worked. Yeah, well, with... Kirk, Kirk addresses it and he says to Spock, I don't think you should swear. Yeah, exactly. And it was that was kind of like, I suppose, the audience, you yeah. know, of it. and I think that worked and that's why it was funny. And I think his response was hell no or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Spock's, Spock's... But also Spock isn't in his right mind because he's just been resurrected. Mm-hmm. So he's not quite there. So yeah. I think that's part of it as well is that Kirk is frustrated with Spock in the sense that he's... Mm-hmm. Spock doesn't remember to call him Jim. Kirk's given him instructions and Spock isn't quite remembering. Does he call him Jim at the end? Because I thought he would when that... He, he gives him that speech about... You know, it'd be the human thing to do. But I thought that he would have, he addressed him still as Admiral or whatever. I, I think so, yeah. But I was thinking, well, that would have been the obvious line would be Jim. I think yeah. we should do this. Like he's went full circle. I think it, it it takes another Spock's relationship with Kirk was very strong up till till he died, and then in this film, obviously he's just been resurrected. He's not all there. Star Trek Five again. We've seen the trailer for that, which we'll discuss another time but you can see there's maybe a little bit of a fractious thing and in Star Trek 6 again there's some of that Spock and Kirk's relationship takes a bit of a hit whether that is a knock-on effect of Spock having died and come back and his personality's maybe changed a wee bit or some of the history's been wiped out I do think it's quite brave of the franchise to have not just reset it made it exactly the way that it was before Mm-hmm. They're not just getting on because they were really cl- close friends, you know. Mm-hmm. But you see a bit of McCoy and Spock as well. Them talking to each other, McCoy's asking him questions about his experience with death, and that's the interesting thing is that as much as this is a funny film, Savick tells Kirk about David's death at the start. Um, McCoy is talking to Spock about dying and what that experience is like and Spock's death is referenced you know in the in the movie so it's 
as much as it is a departure, it's still it's still carrying on. And again, we were talking. About, I, I mentioned the theme to you of Kirk having completed his midlife crisis here at the very start. Opening scenes of Star Trek Two, we see Kirk on his fiftieth birthday, and McCoy says. Everyone else's birthdays, why are we treating yours like a funeral? And Kirk's an admiral and he wants to be in command of a ship, but he's gone past that. And the journey from Star Trek 2 to 3 to 4, Kirk is demoted. Rather than being sent prison for his crimes in Star Trek 3, because they saved the planet, Kirk is demoted to captain and that to him is a gift. But you do see... Would you agree that Kirk has become steadily more youthful again throughout the past three years. Yeah, by that that last film there, you know, he's got the he's got the smoothie charm, you know, he's kind of the women Yeah. Um, he's flirting with yeah. his Alice character. Uh-huh. Um yeah, although she is a lot younger I'm guessing. <laughs> no, she's actually sorry, um well, Alice in Wonderland, Gillian Taylor her name is. Mm. But he's, he's do you think you're referencing Alice in Wonderland? That's what he's saying to her when she gets off. Oh, okay. Ball. I didn't catch that, actually. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, like, the point would being that he felt more youthful, um, you know, the way he's kind of getting Flirting to... Yeah, there's a lot of flirting scenes, all that sort of stuff, um, which he hadn't really done in the last few films no well it, yeah i mean it, it was all about the past uh-huh. feeling older but i think there was a an element of looking ahead yeah with this character and building on that a wee bit but so yeah definitely um more youthful so we've established the film was much lighter in tone well, you love McCoy's character. And McCoy is, is, was, was brilliant. I thought McCoy had some great stuff. And well, actually, we'll talk about that. The ensemble nature of the film is yeah. also one of the things I liked about it. We've compared it off-air to this, um, to Red Dwarf. And Red Dwarf had probably taken some influence from that. You know, it separated the crew and they're, all, and they're doing their little their little things. And then the tone as well even had a Red Dwarf feeling to it with sort of kind of that silly, like that fish out of water Check silliness. Off. Uh-huh. Russian, yeah, the Chekhov stuff was really good. I really like that. The fact that it was Chekhov that was going to a, a military base or whatever, and it's the innocence of the crew being from the future. They yeah. even know the context mm-hmm. that Russians are the enemy. That time frame, it's you know, it's only a few years after the Cold War. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the fact no, it's it's in the midst of it. Well, yeah, because it was, was nineteen ninety one, nineteen ninety that it stopped. So it was only a few years uh, before. Uh, so that stuff was good. I really liked that. <laughs> Sulu didn't do a lot too much, but you know he was fine. Do you like the little scene where he flicked on the windscreen? When yeah, yeah, a little mannerisms. But yeah, Sulu. But, but as I pointed out at that point of the film, everybody was doing what their job role was. Uh-huh, like so a Sulu's kind of a pilot. Aye, so so he's sent off to get a helicopter. Uh huh. Yeah. Scotty is was designing the tank. Uhura mm-hmm. was. She actually had worked out the 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 this she worked out the signal of the probe to, to how it would sound underwater, which led the the crew and Spock to figure out the whole. In fact, if Ahura hadn't had that expertise, Spock would never have realised that it was whales. It's a barmy plot. <laughs> yeah, the whales thing it is so yeah. like it's mental when you think about it. Yeah, because like they're used to you know. 
facing death from alien races, Klingons, and things like that, and all things that well, you'd expect. It's environmentalism. I know it, it felt like a, a film that was built around a message. Yeah, well, the reason for that, as I'd said earlier, um, in the the part, the the first part, where I couldn't talk about it, was that Leonard Nimoy had been reading um, a book called, I think it was, was it Biodiversity or Bio something or other, Biophilia, or I think it was Biophilia, and he was fascinated by it, and it got him into the idea of species being interconnected and some species being of equivalent intelligence to humans on the planet and that's where that line comes from Spock says it's only human arrogance that we would assume the probe has come to communicate with man mm, uh, good line and that even though there's intelligences on the earth that maybe don't live technologically you've got your dolphins and some whales and you've got certain species on the planet that right now as we're talking that probably have a an awareness of self and maybe a concern for what's going on. I mean, for all we know, there could be dolphins and whales in the ocean wondering about all the plastic and waste <laughs> and thinking, where's that coming from? And, and and is it affecting our lives and all that kind of thing? Um, so this biophilia book had affected Leonard Nimoy and that was the basis of the idea for this film, that they wanted to communicate the idea that, uh, as Spock says in the film, Hunting a species to extinction is not logical. To which Gillian Taylor, Taylor replies beautifully, whoever said the human race was logical. You know, and there's that... You take a Vulcan out of being Vulcan and cover him up and put him in a human environment like that. Those questions can be asked and answered honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's really, you know, it's fascinating. I mean, Kirk says we're entering a primitive and paranoid culture. And that's a culture that's, what, 30, 30 years ago? Yeah, I mean, I like that that, um, that kind of reference to the the time, but again, topical now. In fact... Well, at the time, that what, was the time. Aye. What would, what would they say about... <laughs> well, it's, it's no different. Now. Yeah, it's no different, I suppose, isn't it? No, it's, it's no Which different. Which is alarming. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we have not made progress. Uh-huh. Well, and, and in, in some ways, well, this, yeah. socially, definitely not Russia and the states. Mm-hmm. Um, all the different suspicions that are going on, social divisions, and all those things are. But then again, thirty years is nothing to three hundred. True. Years. Yeah. So true. Those are we still have time small to scale reach the Starfleet future, but I, I get the feeling, and we have to remember this podcast journey is a journey as well so we're working through these films I get the feeling like as we're watching these that you're getting to know these characters and getting to like them a bit from like at this point four films in you're starting to kind of be comfortable with them yeah you like a bit of the like when, when the bit where she beamed onto the ship mm-hmm. right she's brought from our time essentially into that there's something a bit magical about that mm-hmm that she's been brought into that set of characters and I, I would imagine you would you would have identified with that in the sense that you would look at that and think what would that feel like? Imagine you were suddenly beamed up onto a Klingon ship with Kirk and yeah. McCoy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is. It's amazing. Um, and we were talking about how she probably would need all sorts of vaccinations and things to withstand how many years of development. <laughs> I know. I mean, well... To be honest, they'd probably need vaccines from what she's got. Yeah, true, true. 
So Hello. what do you think of the what do you think of these characters now four films in? Um well I mean my favourite has become McCoy, I think. I, I laugh at his lines more, his facial expressions. Oh, you know he just looks out of place, so haggard and <laughs> Yeah. But I like that about him. That's what his point. He kinda feels like he represents us and things like that. So it's probably natural that I'm drawn to him more. Um you know Kirk is he's great in the, the lead role, you know, perfectly heroic and you know, he, he can do he can do high drama when it needs, but he's he's better he's probably even better for the sort of slight com- comedic mm. Uh, lines and of course the relationship with Spock and stuff like that is well established um, and you know that's always Kirk, good Kirk is quite flawed as well you, you notice in this film as well that he gets bad tempered sometimes and he flies off the handle a bit Kirk's not a perfect hero I don't think yeah probably not which is good I like that mm. uh, you know there's points when he gets annoyed at Spock and he gets annoyed at Scotty and he feels bad you know he obviously feels bad about it I like that Hmm. I like the fact that he makes mistakes and it's very honest in the fact that you can tell that he's using Gillian Taylor for her information. Well, I know that I was that did occur to me. I thought, well, he's essentially not physically, but essentially just pumping her for information, yeah, <laughs> as I mean, the phrase would be used. But I mean, it's quite uh, cold in a way. She's yeah. so she's so passionate about this thing, and he's kind of doing well, it for his own. He grows to like her, uh-huh. I think. But but he's a Starfleet captain. Mm-hmm. he's a professional and he's got a job to do and the crystals are going to run mm-hmm. out on the ship and they won't be able to get back to the future and those whales are going to get dropped off into the sea and there's a day but she has just a means to an end for him well it's the mission it's the that's that is what they you know he is a Starfleet captain the thing that you'll get to know I mean you've watched four Star Trek films but Star, a Starfleet captain is a, a particular phenomenon in the lore a Starfleet captain is not is not a normal person. To be a Starfleet captain, you have to have a certain quality of character where you're single-minded on the mission and on the go into the uniform, and and that's it. You know, and you will do whatever it takes within reason and within morality and principle to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not going to sleep with her. He's not going to lie to her. He's not going to take advantage of her. But he will coldly cut things off if need be I'm kind of glad that it didn't resort to that to, you know that part of the relationship with them it was obviously hinted strongly that yeah. there was some feelings and I things mean, there, like that there are, there are situations where a Starfleet captain will go to certain mm. places but it's always that they're able to separate their emotions from the mission and they'll pull out and, and it's always about the objective at the end of the day and there's a certain fortitude to a Starfleet captain that you can see that in this film that he wants the frequency. He wants that frequency to, to follow those whales to beam them up. Even to the point where she jumps on to transport onto the ship with him. She, the only reason she goes along is because she jumps on and grabs onto him when he's beaming up. Which, by the way, I think was incredibly risky. That could have been a, a hilariously mangled version of uh, the two of them that yeah. came through. Uh, two heads, things like that. That was thankfully that was incredibly Scott, fortunate. That's not how it works, apparently. Well, thankfully, Scott is a good transporter. Yeah, operator. yeah. Um, let's talk about the designs of the probe. Oh yeah, the big the cigar. Design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my comment on it. And 
bizarre. <laughs> Let's just put it that bizarre way. Bizarre cigar. Yeah. I mean, initially I thought the way it was it was lit and the way it was shot, I thought it looked quite cool, quite, quite an interesting design. Mm-hmm. And then the later on shots of the film when it sort of rotates and you see it better, I thought looked a bit looked a bit naff. Yeah. Well, I think it was meant to look like what UFO reports have been. Because mm. a lot of people say they see cigar-shaped ob- objects, really massive, floating about. So I think there was a reference to that that it's maybe something that has been coming by and checking. Yeah. In the past. So, well, the past from the Star Trek point of view. So I, th- I reckon that was part of the the design ideology of it, or whatever, you know, I don't know how you would describe it. Is it more kind of that they would they would have a look at maybe unidentified flying objects and pick out the most common and say, well, it's usually cigar-shaped objects people see. That could be a probe. It was probably just trying to be something different, um, unusual. I mean... But it's very specific. Cigar-shaped is... So I mean, I, is, that, is that how you would have described it before I said it? I wasn't yeah, sure if yeah. that was... Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's... Well, it's, it's known as like that. A, it's known as it? like a... It's basically like a, just a big cigar. Is it? Yeah. All right, okay. <laughs> it's... I mean, I was just like, that's a funny design. It looks very alien, though. That's the thing. I, initially, I thought it looked really... I think they were trying to evoke I, some sort of, like, I actually 2001 thought... idea as well, because it's very simple. I th- the way it was shot at first, when it wasn't clear quite what it was, I thought it was a massive whale. <laughs> like, a, that was what it was. Like, some weird organic kind of form, but then obviously... I think it is actually meant to be an organic right. form. Yeah. It was. I mean, because it's got the blowhole. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. It's got. It's obviously trying to kind of, yeah, like, do know a kind of the alien, not alien, whale species what they might design, uh, and that's obviously why they communicate. But yeah, interesting, interesting look. Um, I mean, the size of it when you saw it fly past the uh, space dock mm-hmm, mm-hmm. next, because that's big in itself. I pointed that out when the film was on. That in itself is a massive structure. And you see the the thing go past it. Yeah. You know, you get that idea of, my God, this thing is absolutely huge. Aye. What would you say is your favourite scene in the film? Oh, it's got to be the the scene on the end credits, or during the end credits, (laughs) where you see Scotty fall out of the hatch as he's trying to evacuate the ship and falls into the sea. I think they should actually just kept it as it is in the main film. I I think they removed it because they felt it would would distract the audience it was too it was it was it's slap it's total slap aye but like genuine not in a way that like a comedian's trying to do it it's just, yeah. it looks like the actor has just fallen well, like a blooper see that he's trying to hold on yeah and i mean the, the guy that plays scotty james doohan must have been what late 60s at yeah. that point and he's been put into this action scene <laughs> with everybody else and uh he's trying to climb out and orient himself around and then just Loses his balance and slides off the side, you know, which is hilarious. Really, yeah. It's lucky he could swim. I imagine the the audience watching that must have burst out laughing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think probably the actors all on, yeah. on the set probably burst out laughing as well. But um, but that was an interesting scene as well when they were all on the the um surface or the hull of the ship as it was in the water. You were saying it was as if they just filmed them all quite naturally. Uh, you've got a scene where Kirk 
jokingly or or whatever pulls Spock and throws him, they throw each other into the water. Yeah, I don't think in any other Star Trek film you're going to see a scene like that. No, the, the, there's no way. Why would abandon? Yeah, wasn't it? it was just like guys, just just have a laugh. Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cameras rolling. I, I I get the feeling that's what that was, and probably they would maybe were thinking like we might not even use this. But can you see how? as I had said through the film that this film would cause the audience to form, if they hadn't already watched the original series programme to form an affection for these people. Well I can see why a casual audience were drawn to this film if you say this is the and most you commercial. And see the next one. And then yeah, now that there's an affinity built up with these characters seeing them interacting and doing things that we do, going on buses and you know, talking and being a bit silly. Yeah. Letting their guard down and, and sort of um, showing that that's their human side. Uh, so I think that makes them incredibly relatable and likeable and they stand out more as well. And so, yeah, you can see the ensemble element of it probably helped. And yeah, I can see why. And yeah, probably an audience would then maybe check out the other films or continue to watch the, the other ones as they come. From We uh, will talk about it in a very slight bit, but we just watched the trailer for the next film. Star Trek Five, yeah. And uh, it looks like some of the tone from this one is transferred a little to Being that one as well. the trailer, that's to pull in those people. I know, so I'm guessing the film might not all be that. Now, here's an interesting thing. Do you remember the erstwhile stories I used to write on Facebook? Mm-hmm. That had a lot of influence. Well, yeah, I could see that. I, yeah, I could see that. Like, there could be that group of people, but mm-hmm. the, the trying to mix the the comedy with well, that's to me the what I'm seeing as the main influence for Red Dwarf, or, or, or what I feel that some of Red Dwarf is taken from Star Trek. They would have been massive Star Trek fans. Some other guys. That I were... mean, it was happening at almost the same time. That film was out about the same time Red Dwarf was probably starting. I think it was the late eighties. Well, eighty six, probably a couple of years later. Red so, Dwarf started, yeah. Uh, um, and Aliens. So Alien and Star Trek mm-hmm. Four and Star Wars. There would have been a number. Of yeah, all things. these big science. Fi- but the, the, the Alien films are obviously in Star Star Wars take themselves seriously. With Star Trek, obviously, with that film is went into the comedic yeah. realm where Red Dwarf is even further. Obviously, yeah. Um, but you can see where the influences come from. That sort of taking scientific serious ideas and then adding in this silly humanistic element to it. Actually, I think the only difference between Red Dwarf and Star Trek 4 is that the Red Dwarf crew members are incompetents. Well, so, yeah, whereas true. the Star Trek crew are professional, like, they are the best of the best. Yeah, it's like they're a, full, a, sh- a crew of Crichtons. Function, yeah, functioning <laughs> crew that does their job properly, so... Well, that's why the, the, the humour isn't, like, blatant obvious. It's situational and yeah, subtle. totally situational. Uh-huh. It's things like, it's deadpan humour where, you know, it's, what what yeah. what does it mean, exact change? Like, yeah, if it's not, uh-huh. like, crazy, here's the joke, hit you in the head with it, run with it, kind of, it's well, just... Like Gillian Taylor saying to Spock about coming out for dinner, are you sure you're not going to change your mind? And Spock's like... Is there something wrong with the one I have? I know, I suppose, which is a Vulcan response. Uh, yeah, it's very deadpan. A lot of a lot of the humor is kind of actually a bit in with Spock, I would say. Yeah, because it's his completely logical, res- uh-huh. like, just unemotional response to everything that's going on. And, uh, you know, like when he knocks out the guy on the bus. 
he just the noise has to yeah be like off. him doing his his vulcan death grip thing yeah <laughs> yeah that is there was a lot of that and then there was him swimming uh with the whales and the sort of the random guy going is what's that guy doing what was it he said the, right, it's like may, maybe they're saying that i saying things that man and kurt trying to pretend that he's protesting against what spock's done and spock doesn't get it and mm-hmm. just says admiral yeah i, I like and that it's like why is it, why is he calling you admiral Ad- <laughs> that made me laugh the idea that you would just casually call your friend admiral <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> which makes me want to do that i yeah. think we should adopt like military nicknames yeah yeah and just chief. Well, what we'd have to do is do something a bit a bit out of the blue somewhere and then when someone questions it you'd come up and say or or i'd go up to, to whoever did it and go admiral isn't that what we planned? <laughs> no general. That <laughs> yes, no, no general. No, no, um, no. That wouldn't we be as bad as the the other guys if we did that? You know? I would just keep changing your your rank. Also, um, Kirk is a total hobo in this film, so he he basically gets taken out to dinner for free, and like, like there's a whole idea of Kirk and Spock saying to Gillian Taylor, "You're not seeing us at our best here." That's a theme as well. Mm-hmm. Um. They've got no money. They don't really know how anything works. They're not in their comfort zone, but they know what they can. They know that they're they're heroes, basically, and that's interesting. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Uh, I really like that. The Italian bit. Do you like Italian? Yes. No. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Yes. And he just kind of turns back to her. Yes. And so do you. Yeah. 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 Uh, great stuff. Uh, I think we've covered most of the thing. I mean. Chekhov again with the the Russian stuff was great uh, there and the Americans oh we're being signaled for a break so we'll be back in a minute and we're back so yeah um, we won't spend too long now we're kind of coming to the end of this review um I feel like we've covered the majority of stuff. Again, we spoke about the soundtrack before the podcast, and it certainly was different. It wasn't anything like the previous films, uh, um, Howard Shore's, no, um, <laughs> James yeah. Horner's soundtrack. Uh, but yeah, it was fitting. It fit the tone, that sort of like the, the silliness. The hospital scene, do you remember that? Oh, right? the hospital scene, yeah. Did you notice the bit where they knocked over a guy with a stucky on his leg? <laughs> Everybody else runs by, but McCoy stops to go back and help him because he's the doctor. Yeah. He's got this instinct. I love McCoy in the hospital. I think he was great. <laughs> yeah. Just the, comparing everything to medieval times and things like that and arguing with the doctor. Well, and cures stuff. the old lady of dialysis. Mm-hmm. He gives her a pill. He's like, she's like, I've got dialysis. I know. Like, what is this? The dark ages. <laughs> <laughs> His little lines are great. I think he's just, yeah. McCoy, definitely my favourite. Um, but yeah, I think I think that would probably cover most of what we've got to say on this film. Now let's get to the rating then. Well, I I feel that this film I would give it a five. Wow! Now the reason for that is that I feel that Star Trek Two is a five because it's it's really is almost the perfect Star Trek action movie. 
this is the perfect Star Trek character film. It does have a lot of great character beats. I feel like I know them better. And Leonard Nimoy did a great job for his second major mm-hmm. film. An incredible job. Now, Nicholas Mayer, the guy who directed Star Trek 2, did a bit of work on the start and end, the, the bits in the 23rd century. So you got him back doing that again. So that's why those bits are so good as well. And I just feel that it really... You know, it's it is the other five star Star Trek film. It's the only there's two five star Star Trek films, Star Trek Two and Star Trek Four. The, the other highest one you're going to get is like four, a four star. Um, do you know what I mean? Like you're never going to get more than than four for any for anything else other than Star Trek Two and Four. Would would you not say the reboot ever the first one? 2009. No. I'd say that's a four as well, yeah. probably. But we'll, but we'll again, get that, that could be revisited when when I've watched it again. But I'd say Star Trek Star Trek Four is there's not anything wrong with it. I don't feel like there's anything wrong with it. I feel like it was directed perfectly. I feel like the music was suitable. I feel like the pacing was right. Character moments were perfect. Everybody got a good stint, maybe with the exception of Sulu. But even then, he was given the role to which he, his profession would would mm-hmm. dictate. You know, and nobody else pilots. You know, and they were generous with Ahura, giving her a chance to go with Chekhov because Chekhov's security, but they gave Ahura... She's a communications officer, but they they gave her the chance to go with him. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I just... Just such a good film. And other resolutions as well. It it doesn't wipe out Star Trek 3. It carries on from that. And it it deals with the midlife crisis from Star Trek 2. You know... It's great. I I just don't have... There's nothing I would change about it. You did say before, it feels like the conclusion to a trilogy which started at two. Yeah. Now, you get... Star Trek V does start out exactly where this one ends. Mm -hmm. And Star Trek VI is a wee bit further on, but again, references things from two and Mm -hmm. three and whatever. But this really is the trilogy, two, three, four. Probably from a quality perspective, the, the, the sort of all three of those films are nearly at the same level I suppose there's a bit of a dip with the last film free yeah but um but you it know, did a lot of world building uh-huh it still had a lot to contribute and was necessary as part of the the trilogy um for me the film is probably actually a 4 mm. i agree with nearly everything you just said it just it comes down to a little bit of you know i think familiarity with the franchise and history that it doesn't quite grab me in the exact same way mm. to, to reach for the five. Yeah. Um, the same way that I was close to giving The Wrath of Khan a four because of that. And I feel it's a film, I feel similar. And um, that maybe with much more exposure to the rest of Star Trek and then re watching this film and understanding the time and place that it came out in as well, I think my appreciation would slowly increase to the point that I would eventually get a five. First time viewing, just a fun film. Uh, you know, like you said, the pacing was great. Character beats were, were great. Tonal departure, sure, but mostly warranted and, you know, it made the film made it work. It wasn't completely stark contrast. There was the elements at the beginning where it was serious and then the film in, in general wasn't. 
but it made it, it made it work. And you kind of did need you did need to 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 make that ridiculous plot work. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like that plot, plot is that plot is nonsense, but they somehow make it work in the same yeah. way that I can kind of get behind. But when you actually look at it on paper, it is ludicrous. I mean, it is barmy. It is brave. I mean, to have attempted that. It is so, mental. One thing I would say as well is that rewatching these, I've not watched the Star Trek films for a while. Rewatching them again and hearing your opinions on them as we watch them as, as well has made me appreciate just how good the films actually are. I mean, they are actually really good movies. I mean, you know, a film doesn't have to be five star to be a good film. That's an exceptional film. Yes, I you know, think... So, you're, when I'm looking at these, I'm thinking, my God, you know, actually, Star Trek 1, 2, 3, and 4, what a run. Uh-huh. What a run of films to have had so well, far. I, to borrow from the Empire podcast, they always say a free star film and up is a recommendation. Yeah. So three stars there's something maybe not quite right but it's still worth seeing that's how they see it and i've kind of i kind of agree with that so yes a lot of people because a lot of people kind of it's very binary when they talk Mm -hmm. about films and and, and media it's either crap or amazing and it's like well no there's it's an art it's a piece of art that has this going for it but well could have done this better but still worth watching and um but this is beyond that. This is a very, this is a very good film. But uh, yeah, it was just. I mean, the four of them so far have been. It's a strong start. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've had two three stars, and I would say a four and a five. You, you would say two five. So two fives, two threes. Mm-hmm. Definitely a strong start. And I know we're going to hit some rocky road, <laughs> rocky bumps in the road. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we we touched upon Star Trek Five. I don't want to say too much about it just now, but. I do feel that Star Trek Five, I would give Shatner credit in the sense that he produced a film that contained at least two five-star scenes. If you want to, if yeah, you want to if break you, it down uh, like out that, of isolation, uh-huh. take them. You know, if yeah. you were to if you were to do like a giant compilation of all the best Star Trek scenes, there's a good couple of them, or maybe three of them, that are in Star Trek Five that Shatner directed and did a great job on them. And he messed up a lot of other stuff, but you know, but that is the 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 firm foundation of those characters and the understanding of them, and it is a gift for for someone like Shatner to have been given that to direct those act himself as well. But Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, who played McCoy, and that character history as well. What a gift! I don't think Shatner could have directed a film from scratch. With new characters, it would have just just been wrecked. Um, but that's the thing about a franchise like Star Trek or the Marvel franchise or Star Wars, or I suppose the one thing that you well, you said this earlier on with Marvel and Star Trek is it is a consistent ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. You don't get that so much with Star Wars. No, it's not. There, it's a crew. Yeah, the Marvel cast really is a crew. Uh huh. Aren't they? They're a crew, a very wide-spanning crew. But yes, it is. But there is a general core crew, mm-hmm. um, and that's where it's similar to Star Trek, as you get to know the the crew. But yeah, anyway, I mean, we could go on and on and on um, about various different things. But so a five and a four—that's not bad. 
So that's a 4.5 in tandem. In fact, what we should do is we should average out our scores if we've disagreed as to what the average would be and then at the end we'd give a final rundown okay. score. So say I did three, well, uh, well, say I did four, you did yeah. three. That'd be a 3.5. Yeah. Um, also, I was thinking in the end we'd have a, some sort of ranking podcast where we sort of debate our favourites. But we could have it the two versions of that as well. We could have the statistic yeah. one that actually says how we would vote. And then we have the passionate argument one well, yeah. where we actually discuss, you no, could, no, this why this is better. Exactly. And then we agree on it. We're objective and subjective. I mean, you could even have, well, we could have one that if we do the, the score one, could have your score total, my score total, and the average. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. Very scientific. <laughs> no, I agree. Um, I'm totally, that was kind of the plan. So... Hang yeah. on a minute, are you, are you saying that you planned what I said before I said it? I went back in the past. This is almost like time travel. <laughs> okay, that about wraps it up then. So we've kind of agreed an average 4.5. For the sake of this podcast, we'll go with Fran's score, the higher version. And we'll no, I no, don't know. No? Right, okay. I, I think I think we should always go for the middle. Like right, okay. We'll leave the middle is. So it's it's the second best film of of the series so far yeah probably likely to stay that way and that and you know what that is exactly probably where most people would place it yeah yeah i think for me the only thing that held it back was just grappling with this slight silliness of it like sometimes i thought is have they went too far you know it felt like a sunday special it felt at times like a christmas episode where it doesn't really exist in the real canon and it's kind of just like guys here's just look at these guys they're on earth look at them there and that was kind of initially i was like i'm not sure i'm quite with it as the film went on I, i kind of embraced it I was able to appreciate the fact that you do have to mix things up and you do have to go change things up. And I think they made it work. Like you said, great character. Thankfully, thankfully, they ended it with the courtroom scene Spock and Stad. Tied up. Actually, so the Klingon storyline, I take it, is what's going to continue because we haven't obviously any closure on that. The Klingons now hate yeah. the Federation. So the, the the Starfleet side of things, they've resolved their dispute because obviously Kirk, the Kirk was a renegade at the beginning of this film from the previous film, but now he's still just going to be a renegade from the Klingon side of things. Which is, it's fair because Kirk and company did save the planet, literally. Yeah, I suppose that would make up for things now and then mitigating as the president said it was mitigating circumstances so they they at great personal risk because you saw how risky that time travel was it was not an easy thing to do hmm. yeah i mean probably unlikely to actually do that and come back to and that specific ship. come back to that specific universe and yeah. time hmm. i'm not a science expert it just seems very unlikely yeah i mean plot holes aside <laughs> It was a risky thing for yeah. the characters to have undertaken. Yep. So, so yeah. So it's it basically the the world is intact for the next film. Yeah. Well, okay, then that'll do us for this episode. Um, that's been great. I've I've really enjoyed this this episode. I really enjoyed that film. So I'm looking forward to what's in store. Star Trek Five: The Final Frontier. Yeah. 
Get ready for it. Okay, any final words, Fran? Um, I don't know. I, I, well, actually, yeah, I do have some final words. I've got to do a massive presentation tomorrow, and I've had a few beers, and um, I've stayed up later than I thought I would, but I'm still confident. So, yeah. So, wish me luck, listeners, even if it's from the future, because, as we know from Star Trek Four, it can affect the past. I was wondering, I was like, Please tie this back into Star Trek somehow. I'm always Otherwise... going to segue it. <laughs> always. Okay then. Thank you. Good night. See you next time. Bye bye. Adwoa.